Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from the RV in Key West, Florida, and I'm excited to welcome Phil Castleberry, who serves as Vice President for University Advancement at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Welcome, Phil. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me. Now, to all you listeners who've been on the journey with me by way of the podcast or uh, at Evertrue more broadly, I have to share that RIT holds a very special place in my heart because my co-founder, Eric Karlstrom, uh, studied computer science at RIT. And as we were getting to know each other, before we agreed to uh, actually partner up uh, in the business, we decided to go on a road trip out to RIT. Uh, and it would be a chance for him to reconnect with his alma mater, a chance for us to do some uh, early, early pre-product customer conversations. And we made the must have been seven hour drive out to uh, Rochester from Boston, got two speeding tickets along the way, uh, which depleted our very limited resources at the time, but we had a great, uh, great trip out there. So uh, Phil, I'm just going to share, Phil joined RIT in February of 2020 in this capacity, six weeks before the pandemic started. And so he has not only gotten to know a new institution, but an entire team in an almost fully remote context while uh, trying to generate revenue uh, for the institution at the same time. So has been juggling a lot, uh, has learned a lot, and I really want to uh, welcome him so he can share some of that, uh, the highs and lows of the last year uh, and where we go from here. So welcome, Phil. Thanks. And uh, I'm blessed in the sense that there were a lot more highs than lows, despite everything the world threw at us last year for me personally. Love it. Love it. So we'll get into all of that, but one of the things I like to do to frame these conversations is just understand uh, your own college experience. And my understanding is you uh, uh, that we're both first-generation college students, and that you were, um, uh, uh, you know, able to pursue a degree uh, in part thanks to philanthropic support. And I'd love to just know a little bit more about Phil in high school and kind of what your path to college was and what stands out during that time. Sure. Um, so I. Uh, grew up in a military family. My father uh, was career Navy uh, in his late 60s. He's still working for the Navy as a civilian. Uh, so that was a childhood that was picking up and moving with some regularity, um, which wasn't always great growing up. But in, in hindsight, I think it was great preparation for this line of work because, you know, you, you learn to adapt quickly, thrown into new environments and, and start to build relationships. Uh, high school was Orlando, Florida, and uh, I've been enamored with airplanes from as far back as I can remember. Uh, so I actually, in, in high school, started taking pilot lessons and uh, got my license and thought that was the path that I would take. Uh, my parents, you know, were supportive of college, but, you know, weren't, one, financially in a position really to support it um, and and really said if, if, if you're doing it good luck uh, go get some scholarships uh, so I wanted to pursue aviation that made the search easy because the number of four-year degree programs out there were few and I should mention that one of my neighbors was an airline pilot who had strongly said get the four-year degree do don't you know make that your priority uh, so with his guidance, I, I narrowed down a pool. I, I really wanted to go to Purdue, uh, to be honest, uh, but financially that that wasn't going to work. Uh, so Central Missouri 
State University, now the University of Central Missouri, uh, ended up offering me a, a full scholarship, uh, room, board, books. I, I actually profited uh, later in my college career off of that scholarship. Um, and so I, I went to Warrensburg, Missouri uh, to, to become an airline pilot, I thought. Uh, semester in, I had a great uh, American government professor who, uh, you know, I'd always had an interest in politics and government, and I thought, well, maybe I want to go that path instead. Uh, and that's ultimately what I, what I did. Um, and so that, that's how I got to college. My, my college journey. Uh, well, can I just ask you to tell yeah. me more? I mean, I'm sure we've got some listeners out there. Uh, and myself included, who have had aspirations of getting that private pilot's license. So uh, what's, the, what, what's the real uh, review of that experience? And what was it like the first time that you, I don't know, did your, your first solo flight? Um, you know, that's the, that's the memory I still have. And, uh, you know, my, my, first, uh, my, my first instructor, uh, Ed Hodap was his name. He just passed away recently. Um, and I hated it. I mean, I just absolutely hated the guy uh, because I was a punk 17-year-old kid at the time. Uh, and we were, you know, we'd left the, uh, you know, the executive airport in Orlando. We flew down to Kissimmee near Disney World. Um, and he had me, you know, it's a smaller airport. We pulled off to the side and he um, told me, you know, kill the engine. Uh, and he he pulled out this, you know, walkie-talkie, basically, and he opened the door, and he's like, all right, go do it. You know, I had no idea. My, that was my first day, and it's probably the best way to do it. Uh, you know, he knew I was ready, uh, and I didn't have to think about it. I just had to do it, and uh, great experience, and I'm, I'm now beginning that process with my own son, who is 15, uh, and so he's learning to fly, and it's forced me to reactivate my own license, which, which has been a lot of fun to get back into that. I love it. And, um, you know, I don't know how many uh, advancement leaders can actually fly themselves to, uh, to meetings with donors. So I don't know if you've uh, had the opportunity to do that, but um, it's on the table for someday. Early, early in my career, I did. Uh, if you read most uh, university insurance and risk management policies, uh, there's a lot of hoops you have to go through to actually get permission to do that. So I've I've never tried, uh, but maybe I will as I, as I get back into it now. I love it. I love it. Well, um, like many people, in my understanding, you, you referenced it, but you, you did really um, not only pursue politics, but uh, began to prax- practice it, at least at a campus level, uh, you know, th- in your time at, at Central Missouri. And I'd love to just know a little bit more about your uh, campus leadership, uh, because I suspect that is some of what uh, led you uh, to get drafted to join the advancement shop um, upon graduating. Yeah, it, um, you know, it's funny. The other thing I'll share is I, uh, I, and I don't advocate this for anyone, but I did my undergrad experience in three years. Uh, there's absolutely no good reason for anyone to do that. But I, in my mind, I, I had, I had goals and plans that I wanted to achieve. Uh, and so I, was elected president of the uh, Student Housing Association my freshman year in my second semester. Um, and in that experience, I was looking at the student government and thought, I want to run that before I'm done. 
And at least for my campus, the path to that was uh, Greek life. Uh, and so I had I not gone through rush my freshman year, but I recognized that to achieve my goal, that was that was a step I needed to take. So I followed my sophomore year, I rushed, uh, pledged uh, Alpha Tau Omega, joined ATO. Um, and for anyone who was in Greek life, uh, the next thing that happened to me should also never happen, uh, which is my uh, chapter put me up for uh, IFC, the Interfraternity Council Presidency, as a pledge. Um, and the strategy there was that um, we were having lots of, it was university-owned Greek housing, and there were lots of uh, conflicts and issues. And I was bringing strong relationships to the table that could help us achieve what we wanted to do. And then for some reason, I got elected. Uh, and so that kind of just elevated my, my campus leadership spot. Um, that year I got elected IFC president. Uh, a beautiful Delta Zeta named Tracy Ettinger was uh, elected Panhellenic president. I, I had not met Tracy until we were interviewed together for the campus newspaper. Uh, and we will have been married 19 years uh, this year. Uh, so ATO was good to me in many ways, uh, lifelong friends, you know, I, I pursued it with a goal uh, of it getting me somewhere and, and I got so much more out of it. Um, and then fast forward, I, I recognized at this point, you know what, I can get out of here a year early, go to law school, which was, you know, my intent. What else do you do with a political science degree except go to law school uh, is what I thought at the time. And um the, the sitting student government president, who was a good friend of mine, um, who also interestingly got into philanthropy professionally as well, um, had one semester left before he graduated. And so he came up with this idea and brought a proposal to me. Why don't you, uh, why don't I re replace the current vice president with you on the ticket? Uh, and then you'll take over as SGA president uh, for you know, one more semester. And so that's, that's what we did. We, we got elected. Um, and yeah, and that was, and that, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll get to this question in a minute. That paved the way for how I got into what I'm doing now. Tell me about it. I mean, who, you know, somebody spotted you and, and saw potential and probably introduced you to a line of work that you might not have even known was a career path. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, at that point I, I hadn't, Honest to God, I had no idea that people gave money back to their college or university. I mean, it, it just never crossed my mind and I wasn't exposed to it, which um, you know is unfortunate because there's a missed opportunity for lots of students to be educated on, on the power. Even though you were an incredible beneficiary of it, you didn't really even know where it came from or how it- Yeah, those dots it, uh, were- yeah. You know, and I- I've thought back to, did I ignore it or did nobody tell me? And I, I don't think I ignored it. Um, I just think the opportunity was missed. Um, but a nice thing uh, at, at Central Missouri was that the SPA president actually had a permanent seat on the president's cabinet. Uh, and so I, every Monday morning was sitting around a table with vice presidents, CFOs, all of that. Um, and one of those individuals that I became very close to was the, the uh, head of development. Um, and, you know, pretty early uh, in my term as president, uh, you know, she 
she came to me and she said, you know, what are you, what, what are your plans? I have a job open and I think you'd be great at this. Uh, and I, at that point, no, I'm going to law school. Uh, you know, all said, I, I, I have the plan. We're, we're executing the plan. Um, so I graduated, got to, um, you know, summer and started to realize that this wasn't really the plan that I wanted. Uh, I wasn't ready. I just turned 21. Uh, you know, I just, I don't, I recognize I didn't quite have the maturity to power through three more years of school. Um, and so I, I reached out and, you know, hey, is that job still available? This was, this was back in the era when you actually could make those HR things happen really fast. And uh, Marilyn Landers uh, was her name. And uh, she gave me my first break uh, running the student phonathon uh, with touch tone phones and paper pledge sheets. And, uh, you know, I never gained a freshman 15, but you gained 15 pounds easily if you're running a phonathon every night of the week, eating, you know, pizza and, and all of that. Um, but it was, I think was, you just coined the, the phonathon 15 for all sure. you listening out there. We've had a lot of guests who have come up the ranks in the phonathon. And uh, if you uh, also fell victim to the phonathon 15, please shoot me a note and, and let us know. Maybe we'll do a future episode on that. Um, but what were some of the highs? I mean, look, you went from not even knowing that raising money or people giving money was a thing, much less a career path to running a high volume outreach program. You probably didn't have, you know, I'm, I'm guessing it's one of those things you're basically thrown into it. You get a little bit of, uh, you know, tutorial, but you know, it's also somewhat common sense. Um, what were some of the highs or lows? I mean, you know, th there is really an opportunity for a, uh, uh, some kind of documentary on, um, you know, uh, phonathon confessionals or something like that, because there are some funny stories that everybody, uh, has good, good, bad, and otherwise, but anything stand out from that time in your indoctrination to the sector? You know, I remember, um, Thank goodness I had some great student uh, leaders who had come up as callers through the program and had become student supervisors. So we never had more experience. They had more experience than you did. Probably more experience, but yeah. thankfully they didn't have a college degree yet. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we never we never allowed student supervisors to run the program without me there. Uh, you know, so I, I didn't benefit from that in a way that lots of programs get to now, but. You know, I think I, I learned a lot through them. The other thing is that, you know, remember, I had just graduated. So I, with the exception of the freshmen, I knew all of these people. They knew me. Uh, I think that was, that helped. It helped me recruit and hire uh, for sure. Yep. Uh, and, and call underperforming people out in a way that most people couldn't in, in a work relationship. Um, I just remember... I think early on just being surprised that you could call somebody um, and five minutes later, they're giving you their credit card number for 500 bucks. You know, again, it, it, it just, it really blew my mind that that happened. Uh, and, and shortly thereafter, I mean, honestly, I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't hang around there for a few years. Um, just kind of given that, affinity, your experience, the connection. Uh, but shortly thereafter, you started um, 
you know, maybe like your, your military tours of duty kind of going from base to base and, and just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So a, a bunch of things happened, uh, in, in that time. Um, you know, the, the job was offered to me always, you know, I had deferred my law school admission for a year. Maryland hired me with an agreement that if I like it, it, you know, this is a permanent job. You can stay with it and grow a career here, or you can leave after a year and, and go to law school. Um, a lot of things had happened personally in my life, um, you know, where if you've ever been to Warrensburg, Missouri, it's, it's, a, it's a fun place to go to college. It's not a place to be a young adult. Uh, and so I was thinking about what other opportunities could be and what, you know, there's, I'll, I'll stress that it's so important that the relationships and the contacts and the networking that you do, you know, professional contacts I've had for over 20 years now are still in my life and still play an important role. Um, you know, and I'll, maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but I will, um, so I was, uh, so case district six, uh, the conference, at least then would rotate Denver, Kansas city, St. Louis. So it was a Kansas city year. Uh, this would have been in 2001 and I was recently single. I should mention, even though I, I met Tracy, uh, we, we didn't actually get together until after college. Um, and so I'm, I'm at the case conference in Kansas city, um, and I, I, you're meeting lots of people, but this one individual person, I, I, I picked up a phone number at the case conference. I wasn't there to pick up, uh, you know, a significant other, but I, but I did. Um, and so she worked for the University of Kansas. Uh, you know, that's you know, hour apart. Uh, so we, we went out, you know, and had dinner one night. Um, we quickly realized that I was 21 who looked like he was 30 and she was early thirties who looked like she was 25. So once we realized that this huge age gap existed, nothing more happened other than a great professional relationship, but KU was hiring uh, a phonathon manager. And so I had reached out to her and said, you know, what can you tell me about this job? And, you know, so I was going through the motions on the brink of an offer. Um, and she was actively interviewing at William Jewell College. They had a new vice president. Things were shifting. Um, and she, you know, when we were talking about KU, she said, you know, I'm thinking about going to William Jewell and I really like what's happening there. They have an annual giving director position. Uh, you should talk to the person. Uh, and so, again, this just doesn't happen these days, you know. I had a phone call on a Wednesday. I was in Liberty, Missouri, which is just north of Kansas City, interviewing on Thursday. And I had a job offer Thursday night. And Friday morning, I took it. Uh, and so I, I was leaving Central, but I, you know, again, I, you know, 22 at that point, I was a director. I had grown my pay by 15%. It's still, I'm not sure it was a living wage, but it was still more. And I was getting a chance to relocate and, and move to Kansas City and be kind of where an early to mid-20s person should be. And yeah. so that that's kind of how that first move happened. 
No, I appreciate the candor. And I think, look, relationships matter. And I think um, the relationships you built as a student leader, the relationships you build in the case circuit, um, you know, all of that compounds over time. And, you know, you don't appreciate it at all in the moment. Uh, but I do think it's a reminder why it's important. And part of the reason why we even, you know, launched this podcast, obviously, you know, at a time when there's not a lot of case conferences or the same kind of in-person programming, um, it's been a chance for our listeners to hopefully get a window into, you know, your world and other leaders in the space um, and, and build those connections. So I, I, I hope, you know, you have some of our uh, listeners reach out uh, as, as we go through this, but but I think you're, you're spot on that being intentional about that relationship building, it really does co- compound in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. And so uh, super young uh, take on, I mean, you know, of course, after one year in the phonathon, you have uh, everything you need to know in order to run a, an annual fund, uh, right? And then uh, why not step in as director of advancement services uh, while you're at it? So a couple year run at William Jewell, I'm sure you wore a lot of hats, small uh, college, small community, uh, tight-knit group, I'm sure, um, but probably a great way to just have to do a lot of things, drink from the fire hose a bit. Absolutely. You know, I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. I, I worked then for much larger organizations and I, I just wouldn't have been as grounded and learned as much starting at those places, uh, especially as I did at William Jewell. Um, you know, it was, you know, so new vice president, new president, concluding a campaign from the prior administration, celebrating it, setting the groundwork for the next campaign. All concepts that I had no idea were part of this work. You know, my, my idea was that you, you dial phones from 6 to 9 p.m. and that's how you raise all the money. Um, and really in that experience of, you know, they'd been using an external firm for the Fullathon. The decision was made that wasn't producing the right return. We wanted to bring it in house. Um, I had just done that. So, you know, I was able to build that program from scratch using what I had learned. Um, you know, we went through a whole rebranding of the annual fund, uh, gave it a new name, a new purpose, and then built all of the collateral to go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a board member who was very invested in this work uh, and, you know, had opportunities, again, as a kid, and and credit to my VP who created the opportunities for me and that board member to meet one-on-one and just talk strategy. Uh, You know, those types of experiences are just invaluable and and I've never forgotten it. Uh, And yeah, we, 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 took, you know, and created a $2.2 million annual fund, a, a true annual fund. I, I can get on my soapbox about, you know, what, you know, everybody defines annual fund in, in lots of ways. This is the soapbox. This is your soapbox. Yeah. So what's a true annual fund? I think a true annual fund is promoting, you know, the, the it's budget relief. How can you generate budget relief for your institution in an effort to, you know, provide the maximum flexibility for your CFO, your president, your deans, et cetera, to, to redeploy dollars uh, in, in where it's needed most. But that's not exciting, Phil. You can make it exciting. So, so what we let's do- make it exciting. How do we make it exciting? Because I hear a lot of people saying that is just, that doesn't sell anymore. So I think uh, what we did at Jewel, I don't know if they still do this. Uh, but, you know, 
I think a lot of institutions can do it. We, we looked at the unfunded aid budget. And I, I can't remember what that number is, but let's say it was $20 million. So there's $20 million of um, you know, operating revenue that is being funneled over into student aid uh, in order to, to fill your class. And every one of our institutions do that to some degree. Um, we're never gonna raise $20 million and unrestricted dollars. So we branded the Jewel Fund as 100% of every dollar to the Jewel Fund goes directly to student scholarships. Uh, and it was a one-to-one, -one. you know, money's fungible in that way. Yep. Yep. It's an honest, accurate statement. Um, right. And it worked, that message worked. Yep. Yeah, I think look, like um, all kidding aside, the opportunity, the strategies that seem to work is when you can marry uh, restricted money, sorry, unrestricted money with a uh, clear impact. And we had a guest, Dr. Mark Barnes from Dillard University, who talked about a program they launched where that intersection of budget relieving, but still unrestricted is really a missed opportunity for many institutions. They launched a program that was literally focused on unpaid tuition bills for seniors that if they didn't get paid, the seniors couldn't walk or the seniors couldn't complete their degree. And so creating a program that was completely budget relieving, yet very marketable, right? Do you like, Phil, could I count on you for a $2,500 gift so that Brent can walk with his classmates? Like that is such a different story than, well, here's the pie chart of our expenses and here's the pie chart of our revenue and there's a gap and we need to close the gap. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. That, that's, uh, I love that idea that, that Dillard's doing that. That's a great idea. Um, yeah. So we, you know, at, at my former institution and now, you know, we're doing this at RIT, uh, you know, we, we've, we've identified 18 general funds, you know, so you can support the area that you're passionate about, but we're going to let that institutional leader make that determination so that when a student has an opportunity to go present a paper at a conference and they go to their dean to say, you know, is there any funding for this? There's a pool of money that the dean can use as these opportunities arise. Or when a global pandemic shuts your school down and 10% of your students don't have laptops, there's a pool of money there that we can immediately respond to that need. Uh, so we're really trying to talk about how, how the annual fund strategically positions RIT to give that experience to every student, take advantage of unique opportunities when they present themselves and, and respond to unexpected needs and emergencies when and if they arise. Love it. Let's, um, let's fast forward to your time at WashU because I know that that was a formative um, experience for you. It was obviously a different type of institution, a different type of community, a more uh, you know, national, uh, certainly uh, 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 population. Um, what was it like um, getting settled in there? Uh, any culture shock or you, did you hit the ground running? Uh, tremendous culture shock. Um, you know, I, WashU for me was the first place where I recognized just how much wealth exists in our country. Um, you know, I, I was coming out of five and $10,000 gifts and thinking, gosh, I, I'll never in my life be able to give away $5,000 to someone. This is amazing. To a point where 
you know, very quickly, I was asking for $100,000, $250,000 gifts and not blinking. The donors weren't blinking. Um, were, were you blinking or was that a natural transition? Uh, it took a little bit of adjustment. Um, but I got there pretty quickly because it's a lot more fun to ask for $250,000 than it is $2,500. Okay. And then... You know, this was the first place where I had, you know, travel intensive responsibilities, uh, you know, so that, you know, I'd never had that true experience of building a trip. Um, and then I just, I just found that to be so, it's, it's what I miss terribly uh, about our, our current environment. Uh, you know, still, even a year ago, you know, the ability to check out of the office for three days and do nothing. Um, and th those are those are grinding days. You know, you can sometimes be going from seven in the morning till 11 at night, trying to hammer out some contact reports before you go to bed. And then you do it all over again the next day. Um, so all of that, I, I got such a good exposure to, to, to just high level major gift work. And then at the same time, because I was based in an academic unit, uh, began to develop relationships with faculty um, and got exposed to, to that side of a research university yeah. uh, that I was just so fulfilling. Uh, the, the, the relationships were fulfilling. I, I was learning something new every day. And then I had a lot of fun in that model of, you know, so we had a huge regional program uh, and, and helping to facilitate, you know, a regional director comes back from Dallas and gosh, somebody, they're really interested in this. Is anybody doing this work and, and helping facilitate those conversations? I, I, I just love the, the complexity and diversity of my work there. Uh, Phil, can I ask, did you overlap with Amanda Tribue at all while you were there? Do you recall that name? I think yeah, you might've had a few months together. She's now the senior vice president at Western Kentucky University. Um, but I just hosted her on the podcast recently. It hasn't even aired yet. Um, but she had worked for her alma mater, Western Kentucky, uh, before joining Wash U. Um, and, and it just had a very similar experience, culture shock. Uh, you know, she was covering the Northwest, talked about, you know, even having an accent, you know, being from, from the South and the questions she would get from the donor population. And, and, and it's just, it's just coincidental that it sounds like you had sort of a similar, um, experience. It was. And yes, Amanda did come in. We overlapped a bit near the end of my time there and the beginning of hers. Um, yeah. And yes. so any just like real, either, you know, memorable success stories or challenges uh, during that period? I'll, I'll, I'll tell this story here that, you know, if you've ever worked with me, uh, you, you've heard this story because it's, it's my most memorable and most transformative gift story. Um, and it was also, it was my first million and you never forget your first million. Um, but we had an alumnus, I, I won't say his name obviously, but um, you know, here was somebody that, um, you know, the, Rob Gibson who had hired me at Wash U was transitioning to the University of Rochester. Uh, that connection will come back again here shortly. Um, and he was transitioning his New York City portfolio to me and he had just a, phenomenal portfolio. And this one individual uh, uh, that we went to visit was a $5,000 annual donor. 
very consistent. And uh, so we went in with the strategy. All right, let's get them up to 10,000 a year. Okay, so we we got this gentleman up, you know, no question, 10,000 a year. That's great. Happy to do it. Um, so I continue that relationship. And, and, you know, pretty soon after, I'm like, all right, let's let's get him to an endowed scholarship. So I'm like, all right, so he's given 10,000 a year, not using any scientific logic here. Well, let's ask him for $100,000. So I get the visit, go in, we sit in his office, um, and I I put the ask out there. You know, he he thinks about, you know, he asks a couple of questions and... uh, Phil, what'd you say? How'd you phrase it? I mean, what's the real, you know, roughly the language you used? I, I would guess that I probably was, you know, Gary, we're so grateful, you know, your recent increase from 5,000 a year to 10,000 a year, really making an impact. Endowed scholarships is a real priority for us at WashU and talk about, you know, whatever the scholarship and tuition stats were at that time. Um, you know, have you ever thought about endowing uh, a scholarship, you know, make, making, a, making your, your annual gift a permanent uh, part of WashU? Uh, you know, would you consider a uh, hundred thousand dollar scholarship? You know, here's a here's a brochure. So please have our brochures, uh, which I now realize you don't really need. But it's a real crutch. You like lean on those brochures, right? Right. Um, and so he thought about it. And he's like, um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's something that that I want to do right now. Um, you know, but you know. Let's let's talk about it, you know, again. But but I'm not going to do that right now. I went into that meeting 100% sure he was going to say yes. There's no doubt in my mind, and I, in a way that I hadn't been before. I remember just being a little shell shocked, um, to the point that I didn't reach out to this person for six months, maybe a little longer than six months, even though I was in New York probably once a month. Uh, you know, I, I just avoided him. And finally, I, I figured, all right, I, I need to go. Uh, I, need, I need to go see him again. I still can't quite remember how it all played out. I was nervous as as all get up going into this meeting. Um, we had, you know, we had the pleasantries, and I asked about his kids, and we talked about business. Uh, gave him the, you know, whatever the updates were on the university. Um, and he said, and, and he bailed me out here. Uh, you know, he said, so you asked me about a scholarship last night. So he brought it. You know, I was avoiding for whatever reason. Well, we know why I was avoiding it. Uh, you know, he's like, you know, he's like, I'm like, yeah. You know, I, however we got to that, he's like, do you know why I said no? And I'm like, I don't know why you said no. He's like. So if I give you $100,000 today and you put that into uh, you know, an endowment, it's like, how much are you gonna be able to give for a scholarship? I just, you know, did my math on 5% quick, you know, probably about $5,000. It's like, $5,000 isn't gonna do a thing for a student at WashU. It's like, what would it take for to cover a student their tuition? Uh, I love it. Like it would be a million dollars, you know, a million dollars would generate about 50,000. Uh, you know, we'd be able to cover one student throughout. He's like, then let's do a million dollars. So I didn't even ask for my first million, but I still counted. Uh, and it, so what is the lesson? 
the lesson there uh, is really, and I should also say, you know, again, I didn't, I still was learning about wealth and yep. you know, at this point, yep. I'm probably 28, 27, 28. Um, it still hadn't quite registered that somebody could just wire me a million dollars. Yeah. You know, so really understanding, I think for young fundraisers now as a manager, making sure they understand we have these ratings, but what do they mean? Uh, how do you use that information to inform the ask that you're going to make? You know, I went in and asked for a hundred thousand dollars without having done any of that prep work. Yeah. Uh, you know, for what I should ask. I mean, I wonder, you know, sometimes, you know, we've learned that the more you can frame, right, the investment and impact, that can be a way as well to really socialize and, and, and pressure test what a donor might be willing to do before you throw out a number. And so in this case, it, it really was, he wanted an, you know, he wanted to know that I'm taking care of at least one student, period. That was something that aligned, you know, dollars wise and impact wise, as opposed to I can take care of a 10th of a student's tuition every single year. That wasn't enough of an impact. And so I wonder if there's an opportunity to, you know, I, I, talk, I think about this a lot. I mean, philanthropy is the only industry in the world where the price point could be a $5 annual fund gift or a $500 million transformational naming opportunity and everything in between. And so when your when your price points are five dollars to you know let's say fifty million dollars in general, how do you start to frame around you know ten thousand a year versus a hundred thousand versus a million? Um, and so maybe there's an opportunity to say, hey, look, these are what different gift amounts mapped to our priorities and my understanding of your interests. This is the kind of impact that we could have, and it's a balance because you don't want to give somebody ten options. But maybe if you'd said, hey, look, here's what a, a hundred thousand, a million, and five million mean, mm -hmm. what's your reaction to that? Could he have opted into the million dollar scenario earlier? And so how do you think about the the hundred thousand dollar clear ask versus let me present a, a small menu of options? Well, I, I think Brent, you you hit on something, and I do that a lot now you know, in my work of, you know, just as a subtle, you know, you know, especially early in relationships, you know, showing that sort of map and, you know, where do you see yourself? It's sort of what consultants do in feasibility studies. It's that same idea. You, we can use that in, in our work. Um, you know, this individual could have given me $5 million that day and it wouldn't have changed his life in, in any way. To your point, had I shown him what that impact would have been, you know, instead of supporting one student, you can, can support that one student for four years and we're going to add a freshman each year. So then you're going to have a cohort of students that are always being supported. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think your, your point is excellent uh, that, you know, the option, the, the menu in, in a sense, as long as you keep it within reason, uh, can be really effective. Um, the other, the other thing, if I can, Brent, just on, on that, point, please. Um, 
you know, so this, this individual went on to uh, join the board of trustees, uh, made two eight-figure gifts uh, after I had left the university, probably had done many other things. And, you know, I, I have a lot of pride as I look back and think, you know, I, I that first meeting I had with him, he was a $5,000 donor. Um, if, if my boss hadn't strategized the need to transition prospects thoughtfully, there's a very good chance that he would have gone unseen. Totally. And look, I think that's one of the, the areas where um, how many people like that are going unseen right now. And I think it is the difference between, you know, you can only market your way to so much success at the end. You know, ultimately it is that one-to-one -one conversation, the relationship, you getting shot down, going back, re, uh, you know, re-engaging and ultimately leading to tens of millions of dollars in lifetime value that may have been perpetually a $5,000 donor. And I think those, that's one of the areas where as a vendor, you know, in the midst of all this digital transformation that's going on out there, how can we do a better job to make sure people like that can't just hang around in the middle of the giving pyramid, getting whatever stewardship comes out associated with that annual gift without being challenged, without having the opportunity to engage one-to-one um, -one with the fundraiser. And I think coming out of the pandemic, we've got an opportunity to scale that kind of conversation by way of technology like this, much deeper in the giving pyramid than ever before. No, we do. And we have a way to connect our donors and our prospects with faculty and deans and yeah. other alumni. And I, I don't, I don't want to skip over your time at RIT yeah. or St. John Fisher, because I know that you generated a lot of results, um, sorry, at the University of Rochester or St. John Fisher, but I do um, want to uh, make sure that we get to share with the audience why, uh, you know, what inspired me to invite you specifically today, which was uh, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a post that you had put out on LinkedIn um, where you said, you know, I did something pretty amazing today. I did a discovery visit. Uh, via Zoom with an 88 grad in Hong Kong, and that donor apologized to you for being disconnected. And you know, in 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 the past, a year ago, two years ago, there's a really good chance that you either would have never even thought to conduct that visit via Zoom, even though that was a thing a few years ago, right? Um, or you would have waited to schedule the trip to Hong Kong and try to you know, do all the logistics and expense associated with it. So just tell me a little bit more about that conversation and what inspired you to share it on LinkedIn. And it got an amazing reaction from our, from our peers. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I had done some of the international work at the University of Rochester, uh, but I never had worked Zoom, you know, occasionally a phone call, but, you know, Zoom hadn't been factored into my work. So I would you know, you would go on these long, you know, jaunts through Asia and you make multiple stops. Um, and, you know, they're great and they're productive, but then you don't do it again for six months or a year uh, just because it is expensive and it takes a lot of time and you're doing lots of other things. Um, and so I, you know, in, in, in my time at RIT, um, really was getting a sense through conversations with peers on campus and just looking through some of the data 
um, there's a real opportunity for us internationally. I'm a big believer that there's significantly more wealth and more wealth being created outside of the U.S. than inside of the U.S. The tricky part is figuring out how you get the money to the U.S. if that's your end result. But we have benefits, you know, that there are enrollment benefits and uh, you know, lots of things beyond just philanthropy, but philanthropy as well. Um, and so it was really uh, credit to a great research team who identified uh, this alumnus uh, in Hong Kong who, you know, very successful family business, uh, but now sitting in a, you know, a very prominent government appointed position dealing with um, you know, startups and venture creations and you know, that work that is very critical to what we do at RIT, uh, how do we facilitate the, the relationship? Got the visit immediately. Um, you know, and you know, I'm prepared to do these things at you know four in the morning or six in the morning, whatever I have to do. And you know, he was very gracious and we, we met at, at 9 a.m. So 10 p.m. his time. Um, and it was just a, a, a wonderful conversation. You know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, he first apologized to me. It, it's been 30 years. Um, I, I should reference the other thing. Um, we know through our research that we found that in addition to his success, uh, you know, he has a direct family link to, uh, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, so, and a known philanthropist. So we're like, okay, how can we facilitate that? Um, but, you know, this first conversation was really just talking about his RIT experience, you know, learn that he's still very good friends with his roommates from this time, that he, was on campus four years ago and took his two young children. Uh, you know, he went to the apartment where he lived. You know, this was a really important, meaningful place for him. Um, and he really wants to be involved and give back. Um, and so, you know, since that time, you know, we've, you know, WhatsApped, you know, a few times through messaging. Uh, I'm pulling in our VP of research to uh, have a conversation with him. How can we you know, he shared that they had this NOHK, um, you know, uh, over a billion dollars of strategic investment from the Hong Kong government, a billion dollars U.S. Uh, investment in for foreign universities to partner with uh, this, uh, you know, enterprise that they have going on. Um, and we, we should have been in that, uh, but we had no relationship with them. Uh, right. So... All of that, I, I came out of that, and I, I've been a skeptic through. I'm a, I'm a big believer that we can sustain relationships via Zoom, uh, but I wasn't so sure you could really start meaningful engagements that way. Uh, and, and my mind was completely changed. And knowing that we're all facing the same thing, uh, I figured let's you know I, I was just inspired, and I threw it out on on LinkedIn and. And you're right. It was the, the response was fun to see and uh, you know, hear some other people's stories. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just a good reminder for us all that this is this is a great tool that even when we do go back to face to face, which we absolutely need to do, uh, we're just going to be that much more effective and, and able to stay in touch with people um, yeah. much more regularly. Yeah. Look, I think you're spot on. And, and that is a narrative out there that, you know, I... I feel strongly that the narrative that 
well, Zoom's fine for existing relationships, but not new ones. I think it's an excuse. I think it's a crutch, just like some of the brochures. And uh, we have to challenge it because not only can Zoom be good for new existing, for, for new relationships, I think it can be better than if you had just flown by yourself to Hong Kong and done all that work because you can now bring in the VP of institutional research or the dean or the president or a student who's a beneficiary. And I think this idea that we can now orchestrate a more holistic experience by bringing people in who in the past either could not have traveled or it would have taken months to get calendars aligned can make it an even better experience for new prospects. So yeah, if you're just going to do, you know, standard Zoom, you know, is it the same as going out and meeting somebody? No, it's not quite as good. It's a lot more efficient, but that's the challenge. How can we make it even better because of digital, not just something we have to accept, you know, during the pandemic? Right. And we're, um, we're building a new, a, a regional major gifts program, which is new concept for RIT, but what we had at WashU, what we replicated at the University of Rochester, uh, and it just works really, really well, especially when you're in a position needing to get to know and meet a lot of people. Uh, you know, and I think as we're building this program, it's a great entry point. You know, hey, I'm, I'm building the RIT network in Dallas. I'm not going to be able to get down there due to COVID for probably six months or longer, but it would be great if we could just have you know, an initial meeting. Um, Love it. So we're really pushing our, our fundraisers as we build this team. Start now. Um, yeah. yeah. Have a little bit of a relationship so that when you do get down there, your, your yeah. first three trips are built. You know who you want to see, and you you also know who isn't maybe worth worth your time, or at least not worth a major gift officer. Fair enough. Um, I love that story. Thanks for sharing. And I hope we can keep that momentum. One of the other topics, and I want to be sensitive of time, but um, you, you feel strongly uh, and you've shared, we don't place enough value on the worth of an exceptional major gift officer. And that's something you've obviously given a lot of thought. Maybe you've experienced yourself. I know at one point you had to make a difficult decision in your career where you had to trade love and mission for what you were doing for significant, you know, compensation improvements that only uh, emerged as a result of shifting the role and shifting the institution. So why do you feel we don't place enough value on the worth of an exceptional NGO? Um, I'm not sure why we don't, but I, I think, and I suspect most people can relate to this. You know, if you want to advance in this field, you, you have to manage people and then you have to move up the the pipeline, and I've seen a lot of cases where really good major gift officers do not make really good managers. Uh, and, you know, in the process, we, we take them away from doing what they're really good at. Uh, but we all have, you know, families, personal obligations, whatever it is that we want to provide for, as well as, you know, a hope that we might be able to retire ourselves one day and, and be some level of philanthropists ourself. And so you want to grow, especially I'm talking mainly about compensation. Um, and far too often and still in our industry, you have to do that by leaving that pure major gift officer role and becoming you know, a manager, a DOD, a director, an AVP. Uh, I think we have a lot of work to do in educating in the university space uh, 
university human resource professionals who everything fits in a box for them. Uh, and so if you manage this many people, then you're in this pay band. And well, if you don't manage everyone, then we can't pay you there and you max out. And, um, you know, that everywhere I've worked, that's been the hurdle each time when I try to get a really good fundraiser, more compensation. Uh, you know, what would they don't manage anyone? No, but they generated three and a half million dollars three years in a row. Uh, you know, so, so not speaking specifically to RIT, but you've been around the sector, you've worked at publics, privates, you name it. You know what the average, let's just say for a high producing major gift officer raising 3 million bucks a year, roughly what the industry comp standard would be today, where do you think it should go? Because by the way, there are strength coaches on football teams making $500,000 a year, not to mention the head coach making $7 million a year with massive bonus incentives linked to performance. That Why? Because it generates revenue for the institution. So why is there such a perceived, maybe it seems like a bit of a double standard where, I mean, not to put you on the spot too much, but what's the gap that we're talking about here? Uh, so let me, let me first preface one thing to say that I, I've had wonderful experiences in my short time at RIT, uh, and I'm optimistic that we're going to make some, some headway here. Uh, we, we, I haven't had to have this debate yet. Um, I think... I think the gap is potentially some of these individuals are making 50% of what they should. It might even be bigger than that. Um, so they're making 150, but maybe should be making 300. They're making, making, the, they're making 100. Making 200. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it, they're, they're going to return it, you know, and if we don't, they're going to go somewhere else. That's the other thing. You know, my, my, my one regret about my career is that, um, you know, I, I, I spent seven years at the University of Rochester, uh, but that's the longest tenure I've had anywhere. Uh, and, you know, I, I would love to be able to stay at an institution and take these relationships 20 years. Uh, and that's what I'm looking to do here at RAT. You know, I'm, I'm so excited about where we have the potential to take this program. Um, but if I have to reintroduce major gift officers every two or three years, and look, I, I, I am that person. You know, I, I left WashU to go to the University of Rochester to get, you know, a, more than a 50% pay raise. Uh, and an opportunity to advance professionally so that I could get to the seat that I'm in now. Admittedly, I wanted this seat. This was a goal, but it's not for everyone, uh, nor is everyone right for it. Uh, and so I, in a perfect world, you know, a major gift officer performing at the level I was uh, at WashU, there should have been a way to recognize and compensate that. It yeah. didn't exist. Look, I it's an important conversation. You know, we, you couldn't go to a case conference or other conferences and not hear about the challenges of major gift uh, turnover, the, the the tenure issues, the whiplash donors get when they're constantly being introduced to a new person. Yet nobody's said maybe maybe we're just doing it wrong. Maybe we're not 
I mean, some people have said it, right? I talked about Rod Grabowski, who's talked to uh, University of Buffalo vice president, who shared some good thinking on uh, more compelling incentive bonus plans. But it is a little bit confusing to me that we're just constantly asking ourselves, well, why is the turnover set so high? But at the same time, we're not able to be more flexible and creative to really reward people financially. Like people shouldn't feel guilty about wanting to do well for their family, even though they're working in a mission-driven sector. And I think sometimes people do feel guilty and, and you just shouldn't have to. And instead, you got to go take the leap and switch jobs and that's a way to get around it. Right. Yeah. And it's it's just unfortunate. I, I, we've got to figure out what the solution is. And, and Rod's right down the street. And, I, and, you know, Rod and I should, you know, put our heads together and, you know, take some of his thought leadership in this area and see what we can do with it. Um, It at least warrants some experimentation, some testing, some measurement. Can we run a pilot where we're able to create a path where you could spend 10 years uh, in advance because you produce more without having to go and take a leap to manage people, even if that's not what you really want to do or what you're great at, but it's the only ticket to getting paid more. Right. And I think I may have foregone, if, if there were a lucrative compensation path earlier in my career, I, I, I probably would have foregone, you know, this administrative path that I, right. I yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it's, I, I, I don't, I, I want to say, because I think it's important, I, I don't believe we are sales people, and I, I don't think we should have direct commission type structures. Um, but certainly retention bonuses and, and certain things like that. Uh, yep. you know, we, we need to figure that out because we need to retain the good people uh, you know, to the best of our ability. And then when we don't, if I one, just one other point, because yep. I wanted to, you know, to, to my, my million dollar gift story earlier, you know, what was so critical to that million was that, transition that happened when a staff member leaving transitioned that prospect to me. I did the same thing when I left to go to the University of Rochester. I transitioned that among all of my, you know, high potential donors to one of my uh, good friends. Uh, and, and he takes the credit for those gifts that came. Yep. Uh, and I think- how often, how often, Phil, is that handoff not done well? I mean, I can't ask you to generalize too much, but but to the extent you can, because it seems like just a huge opportunity for um, loss or gain, depending on how well it's done. You know, we let our egos get in the way sometimes. Uh, you know that you know, I somewhere that I had worked previously when I you know gave my notice, and every time I've left a job, I've done it with you know I. I'm glad to be here for two months if you want me here and I can be productive and I'm glad to be here for two weeks if you want me to go. Um, and, you know, one, one comment that's never left my mind is if, if you don't want to be here, then you might as well just go now. Well, that's just the run. Like you're, I hurt your ego because I left, you know, and instead of thinking about all of the good work that I, because again, these relationships, they, and these people, a lot of them become like family. Um, you have to make sure you always keep it a business relationship, but um, you, you care about them and you've invested right. a lot. And you don't want them to just drop. And there are so many people 
that you just you go through contact history and you see like good work, good work, good work for 18 months, silence for three years. What happened? That person left. And then thankfully an entrepreneurial fundraiser scooped them up somehow and started again. Uh, so we, we need to be really thoughtful about how we, how we manage transition, which is why, again, I like, I like having a, a hybrid regional school college based staff because our best prospects should know their regional person and they should know their school or college person. Uh, one of those two will manage that relationship, but it's important to me that our best prospects have more than one point of contact at the institution. And we did that really well at Rochester, I thought, uh, and, and we're trying to do it now here. So I need to conclude, I wanna be sensitive of your time, but uh, one of the things that I've been asking uh, the leaders that we're interviewing is, are you hiring? It's obviously been a challenging year. I'm sure you know you received major curveballs to your budget uh, that you didn't expect when you joined, but where are you now? You've, you've been really transparent, great candor on the show today. And I, I know people have gotten a sense for how you think. Um, what is the future of uh, RIT advancement? Um, what are you excited about? I, I am, so lots of things are happening. We're at, in the home stretch of a billion dollar campaign. Uh, so we are closing in on, on 800 million on our way to a billion. Uh, so a couple of years left there. Uh, we're building this regional program that I mentioned. So we have, uh, Right now, three active uh, regional major gift positions open. We're going to have a college director position opening um, due to a retirement of someone after 17 years. So the example of someone who stayed and did tremendous, tremendous work uh, in, in his 17-year uh, RAT career. Um, we're going to have some more junior level, uh, some associate and assistant director positions in the colleges. Um, we're going to be hiring a, a parent fundraising position. Uh, so there are all in, uh, I think I have about 15 vacancies, 11 of which are fundraising positions. Um, and that, that's a shift we, we recently made. We were 25% fundraising staff when I got here. We'll be about 36% of the staff will be fundraisers when we're fully, fully fun, uh, focused. If you want to raise more, you've got to ask more people for more money. That's my belief. Um, so there are even that shift, even that shift, uh, probably could be a whole other episode. I'm really, uh, you know, eager to see how that goes, but 11 open positions right now, just in fundraising. Uh, frankly, it's, it's refreshing to hear that during uh, what has been so many, uh, where, where freeze or furlough or whatever the buzzword has been. So, uh, if you're interested, you know, take a look at what's going on at RIT. And uh, I think, uh, LinkedIn's probably a great way to reach out to Phil as well. Yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, I, as we post things, these will, we're not posting them all at once, but you know, we'll post them uh, staggered over the next six to nine months. Uh, you know, every time we post something, I'm going to put it out on LinkedIn. So if we're connected, Great. we'll see it. And, uh, you know, we're excited about what we're doing here. Uh, and uh, I've assembled just a phenomenal leadership team and, how I feel about the University of Rochester program from when I got there to when I left uh, is, is how I think we're going to feel about RIT when we look back five, 10 years from now. Super inspiring. And, you know, I would just say for whatever it's worth, Phil, um, there's still not enough advancement leaders that are actively posting on LinkedIn and sharing perspective. I think we're seeing a growth there. 
Um, but compared to other sectors, I, I think that voice is still um, is still lacking to a certain regard. So I'd encourage you to keep doing it. It's it's really neat to see the conversations and help people learn again, especially in a in a fully virtual environment, which hopefully ends really really soon here. All right. Well, Brent, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, thanks, Phil. This was a lot of fun. Be well. Take care. Right.